thank you very much, Tony, for that uh, in generous introduction. And thank you, Kurt, and the worship team for leading us in worship. Uh, I don't know if, I, if there's need for a sermon after that uh, type of worship. I really appreciated it. And uh, uh, just trusting that the Lord would speak to us uh, in our point of need. I bring you uh, greetings from Rexdale Alliance Church. And uh, as Tony said, I was an elder for a number of years. And as I'm standing here, my memory goes back to about 12 years ago when the concept of uh, birthing, Rexdale birthing a church was in, in, in its inception. Uh, Pastor Andrew did some survey, demographic survey in Mississauga, Brampton, and Vaughan to just figure out where the new church plant would be. And with the excitement, we participated in the soft launch about 10, 10 11 years ago. And then uh, when the church was la launched, I believe it was 2005, 2006, uh, we watched with excitement with, with what God was doing in your midst. And of particular importance is uh, the way that the Lord led you by parting the Red Sea in the last one year or so, and the way that you have exercised faith, trusted your pastors, trusted your leadership to lead you, and sure enough, God has brought you uh, just across 400 to this beautiful place. And in so doing, he has not only built your faith, but built our faith as we watch you from a distance as to what God has done in your lives. Uh, I've been following your journey on work in progress remotely. It's, by, it's been my exercise companion. So I've been blessed by uh, this series and I've already started to implement some of the principles that I've been learning. Uh, Pastor Vijay has directed three books uh, uh, in researching for this uh, uh, particular series, and probably some of you have uh, read those books. Uh, three of those books have had impact in my life, uh, some more than others, particularly uh, Oskinus' book, The Call has been of a significant importance in my life. Somewhere in the mid-90s, uh, uh, I was going through what you would probably call a midlife crisis. I had already been at University of Toronto as a professor for a number of years, and I was thinking maybe I need to switch my profession. So I thought, there was a schism between a sacred profession and secular profession. As much as I enjoyed my secular profession as a professor, I always envied the sacred profession of a pastor. So I was embarking on the journey of resigning my job and getting into Bible college to embark on this uh, sacred profession. Uh, but the book by Oskin is The Call really enlightened me, me uh, particularly in the context of him showing that the secular work could be translated into a sacred calling when you allow God to sanctify your secular work and sanctify it. And make it sacred so that you can be a useful witness in your workplace. And that really changed the trajectory of my professional life. And I'm so grat grateful that I read that book, and little did I know at that time that that book was going to not only influence me, but I was going to be speaking about uh, work workplace witness uh, this morning at uh, uh, Upper Room. Uh, Pastor Vijay has uh, set the platform for this series with uh, what I call a major myth buster. Now, one of the myths that we have is that work is the result of, a, of the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And of course, Vijay has uh, busted this myth that work existed even before the fall. In fact, we read that work existed even in the first chapter of Genesis when God created this universe and God delighted in his work. 
and we see that God's work, God's creative work has not stopped. He continues to work and he continues to create and he continues to take care of his creation. And his work is so intricate, so creative, so unique that no two substances that he has created are identical. Whether it be two leaves on a towering maple tree or whether it be two human beings, even though twins, identical twins may uh, uh, share their DNA, there still are significant differences and that's the creative power of God, the God whom we worship. And this originality and creativity of God is an important reminder to us that we are not a lump, a mere lump of protoplasm that has evolved to drift aimlessly in this universe or to dance to the dictates of our DNA, but that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God for the express purpose of finding joy in what he has called us to be and in so doing, glorify God. I know God has not only created us uniquely and intrinsically, but he cultivates in our lives through life circumstances, through academic training, into the tapestry of our, of, of our life. He creates circumstances whether we are a teacher, whether we are a healthcare worker, whether we are a professor, whether we are an engineer, whether we are an electrician or a construction worker, to glorify God and to find satisfaction in our job. So the question that might really come up in your mind is what went wrong? Work is supposed to be a delight, but wherever I turn, we don't see that work to be a delight. And even in situations where people delight in their work, Either work has become an end in itself rather than means to an end, or work almost as gives us identity. It's like who we are is what we do. What has brought us into this mess? What has brought us into this mess is the disobedience that Adam and Eve had, which brought a new dimension to this work, i.e. pain and toil and sometimes even drudgery. We know we are, created to, we are created to be creative and to cultivate. But what hinders us from being creative or to cultivate, nurture this cultivation? And many of us are perhaps aware of the four C's uh, in the uh, hiring circles. And these four C's are competence, chemistry, culture, and character. We, employers usually look at these four C's. We should really get that, okay? And, and what I feel is in addition to these four C's, these four C's are undergirded by a very distinct calling in our lives and overarched by a deep sense of commitment. Of these four C's, there's two things, two of these C's that we can't do much about them. We can't do much about uh, chemistry and culture. We can't change the chemistry of the people that we are working with. We can't change the culture of the environment we are working with, but certainly we can change our character and we can change our competence. So this morning I've been asked to speak about competence and character. 
No, uh, Sir Arthur Doyle, the name may not ring well in your mind, but he was a most noted physician and writer, uh, and most noted for his f fictional uh, stories about the detective Sherlock Holmes. And he played a practical joke one time to, uh, by sending to 12 of his closest friends a telegram which said, flee, everything is discovered. And to his dismay, within 24 hours, each one of the 12 individuals that received the telegram fled the country. And this is to say that each one of these men had something to hide. Now, most recently, the Princeton Religious Research Center published a landmark survey that was conducted, by, uh, conducted for Wall Street uh, Journal by Gallup Organization. And the researchers measured a range of moral and ethical behaviors, such as calling in sick when you're not sick, or cheating on your income tax, or pilfering uh, company supplies for personal use. And the results were disappointing, to say the least. But the, what the researchers found most startling was that there was no significant difference between churched and unchurched people in their ethics and values on the job. In other words, Churches seem to, seem to be having less and less of an impact on the moral fiber of the people, at least as far as workplace is concerned. Now, uh, I summarized that research findings in the following statement. Mere biblical head knowledge, which does not affect the heart, will not translate into behavioral changes at workplace. Let me say that one more time. Biblical head knowledge, which does not affect the heart, will not translate into behavioral changes at workplace. So what makes us to live with behavioral changes that befit us of being called Christ's disciples? Ben Stern, a church planter, a pastor, and an avid blogger, blogger rather, uh, made these two candid observations. He said, discipleship is not knowing more about the Bible. It's actually a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And we all know that. No, discipleship is all about becoming more and more like Jesus. But his second statement surprised me. He said, becoming more and more like Jesus has to do with our character and our competence. Now, when we become Christ's followers, there's something that happens in our character. There's something that happens in our competence that we begin to strive for something that is greater than what we were settling for before. I was saved in 1979, uh, 72 rather. Uh, I have a twin sister and I have two younger brothers. And before my conversion, uh, whenever my siblings and I went to a vacation Bible school or uh, when we brought back our report cards, all my siblings came back with uh, either an a, a, a amazing report card or some sort of appreciation for what their excellence meant as far as VBS was concerned. So they came back with some prizes or certificates, except yours truly. And not only that, because my, I had a twin sister, my twin was always one grade ahead of me, right from grade one onwards. 
And you can just imagine the sense of humiliation that it was, particularly when we had relatives come home and my parents would introduce us and proudly introduce the, two, uh, the twins, and they would ask, oh, what grade are you in? My sister would say, I'm in grade three, and they would ask me, I would say, I'm in grade one. Even without me opening my mouth for any further explanation, the decision for was made in their mind as to where I stood on a, a intellectually. But when I was saved at age 15, this thing changed completely. My life took on in a completely different uh, shape and form. And the reason why it took out is that it took a different shape is that as soon as I was converted, I developed this understanding that I need to glorify God through whatever He has called me to uh, do. And at this point, He has called me to be a student. So I need to be a studious student so that God could be glorified because of the fact that I call myself his disciple. So coming back to uh, the concept about character and competence, perhaps this will really help you understand the relationship between character and competence. And do you see in the graph here, uh, on the vertical scale, you have the character uh, representation, a high character on the top and low character in the bottom. On the horizontal scale, you have the skills, low skills and high skills at each end. If we equip people with high character and ignore their need to grow in their competence or in their areas of skill, all we end up is producing good people with very limited ability. At the same time, if we have people with low character and low skills, they end up as irrelevant people with practically no impact on the society. On the other hand, if there are individuals with high skills and low character, they become dangerous people. Dangerous to a point that they can potentially be harmful. But if you produce people with high skills and high competence, they become influential people and they become fruitful in the society. And in, so, in, in being so, they find satisfaction in the job that they are doing because they're doing it not because of their own ability, because of God-given challenges or God-given blessings in their lives. Now, when Jesus calls his disciples, he wants us to be equipped with both character and competence. In developing our character, Jesus wants us to deal with idolatry, sin, and integrity issues. And in developing our competence, we develop job-related competencies. We learn skills to deal with uh, people, group dynamics, conflict management, and communication skills. So both character and competency are needed for us as Christ followers to bear much fruit. And this morning I want to look at the character competence uh, quotient in three individuals. And as uh, Tony read in the passage from 2 Kings 5th chapter. And in this portion, uh, we step back into ab about 3,000 years or so. And the scene is set in the land of Aram, which is current day Syria, to the northeast of Israel. And from this story, I want to focus on three individuals. First, I want to focus on Naaman. And Naaman's life could be summarized in three words. Naaman, as Tony read in the scripture, was a captain of the army. He was a great man, and he was a good leader. So 
Naaman had position and he had popularity. The scripture describes him as a great man with his master and highly respected. Not only was he popular, but he had prestige. He was a national hero, but Naaman also had a problem. And his problem was that he had leprosy. Leprosy is a dreaded disease. It progressively gets worse. And one day, this particular disease would alienate him from his family, would alienate him from his position, power, and prestige. Moreover, at that time, leprosy was also thought of as a result of some sinful indulgences that individuals were living in. So therefore, there was an additional stigma that was attached to it. Now, it was just a matter of time that leprosy, which was in the early stages in Naaman's life, would take over. And he would be embargoed from his family. And all of his achievements, all of his power and position and prestige would become meaningless. And he would be brought into life of loneliness, isolation, and shame. So usher into this scene of an incredibly successful man with an incurable disease, a Hebrew slave girl. Now, she was most likely brought in by some of the raids that uh, uh, Naaman had conducted on Israel. We don't know much about this, uh, uh, this uh, slave girl. All we know is that she was separated from her family. She was in the midst of a situation that she was not responsible for. Most likely, she was a teenager. And the Bible does not even mention her name. And she has every reason to be angry, bitter, upset. Because now, presumably, she was growing up in a middle-class home. She was, not used to be, uh, she was not used to be a housemaid, but now she was in a housemaid situation. Just this last weekend, we were in, uh, last week rather, earlier last week, we were in Dubai. And a significant number of uh, 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 People in Dubai work as housemates, and they have practically no freedom. Their passports are taken away by the masters, and they are at the mercy of their masters. So just imagine 3,000 years ago, the life of a Hebrew slave would have been much worse. But this Hebrew slave uh, young woman's life is marked by three things. She had a concern for Naaman. She had every reason to hate Naaman, she had every reason to think that Naaman's leprosy was a result of the sin that he was doing against atrocities that he was doing against children by bringing them in raids and using them as housemates. But instead of being bitter, instead of being angry, she had a genuine concern for Naaman. She wanted her master to get better. And she had confidence in her God. Now, just imagine a teenage girl coming and had so much confidence that she says, would to God that my master was in Samaria, that the prophet Elisha would have healed him? She probably would have heard at some point or even seen Elisha doing miracles or even raising the dead boy. And she had confidence in her God. Not only did she have concern for Naaman and confidence in her God, but she had courage to speak out. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I just want you to transpose yourself into her situation. In that culture, for a servant girl to be involved in the private family matters would have been very difficult, and particularly if it had to do with a disease with the master and the head of the house. But she had, a, she had the courage to speak 
because she had concern for Naaman and she had confidence in her God. We are living in a world that it, it calls for courage. Courage for us to speak out, but courage for having, merely having courage to speak out without having concern for the person as an individual and having confidence in our God can completely backfire. And this teenager sets before us the example of speaking courageously, undergirded by the concern for individual, with the confidence that God will bear fruit in the words that we are speaking. You know, this, the role that, that this young girl played is an apt reminder to us that one's age or social standing is not a barrier for God to use us. She was at the lowest rung of the society, but God was using her uh, to speak words of hope. Whoever said that God is irrelevant for teenagers? even this day and age. Now, you think of any great man of God in the last century, this century, all of them can trace their uh, pursuit of God and God finding them to their teenage years. So if you've got teenage children, preteen children, there is so much of hope for us because our God loves children. Our God loves teenagers and equips them. The scripture says that out of mouths of babes and sucklings, he has perfected praise. And God will use and strengthen us. Now, there was a time in my life, I was sitting in a, in, in a meeting uh, at University of Toronto, and uh, one of my colleagues was running down Christians. He said, he was essentially saying something to the effect of Christians are mindless people who just blindly believe and have faith. And he was going on on this rant, and I just very quietly listened for some time, and I said, uh, very respectfully, but very firmly, I said, uh, Ian, you seem to be thinking that, uh, uh, you seem to be talking about blind faith. Do you have concrete, concre concrete and comprehensive evidence for evolutionary science? Or are you merely extrapolating scientific evidence and exercising faith to believe what you're proposing, your, uh, what, what, what you're Pr uh, proposing at this point, you could hear a pin drop. Because I knew that it takes a lot more faith to believe in evolution than to believe in what God, uh, God creating the world and God creating us in his very image. God wants us to be concerned about people, have confidence in our God, and to be courageously speaking using the right words with a lot of respect. You know, to pick up the story of Naaman, Naaman's wife promptly informed Naaman about this uh, little girl's uh, uh, suggestion. Naaman went to the king, used his worldly uh, uh, devices to get the recommendation letter to the king of uh, Israel. Naaman comes with his pomp and glory, stands before the king of Israel. The king of Israel rents his clothes and says, Oh my God, can I heal? Prophet Elisha comes to his rescue. And Prophet Elisha asked Naaman to be sent to, his, uh, sent to him for healing. And Naaman, who was used to popularity and prestige and power, comes and stands before uh, the house of uh, Elisha. Most likely it was a shack. Most prophets lived in a shack at that time. They were very poor. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He, says to, uh, he sends word to, through his servant Gehazi to Naaman saying, Wash yourself in River Jordan and you will be clean seven times. And for Naaman, he was insulted that Elisha had not come out. 
He was insulted that there was such a simple, silly solution that was given to such a big problem. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the problem with the world today. They believe that confessing our sins and believing in Jesus is such a simple thing, and therefore they foo-foo it, just as Naaman did. But because Naaman had power, and because of his own idiosyncrasy, he was in a rage. He ran out of, uh, 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 he was trying to run out of uh, Israel in a fury. But in the midst of that uh, atmosphere, the soldiers who were with him spoke out. I call them the persuasive soldiers or persuasive servants. Then his servants came to him and spoke words of wisdom. And they said, well, if the, if the prophet would have asked you to do something more, more or greater, would you not have done it? How much simple it is if you should have to go and wash yourself in River Jordan? So these servants spoke courteously. They said, my father. You know, can you imagine speaking to somebody who was a, a captain of the army and he was in a rage, he was in a fit of anger? In fact, they were putting their own life on line. But they spoke courteously, they cho carefully chose this word, their words, and they spoke courageously. And God began to use them. And God, you know, it's such a blessing for us to surround ourselves with men and women who can stand up to us and bring us back into the narrow path. There are times that because of the human nature, we might really react in a way that God does not want us to react and therefore and thereby forfeits the blessings that God has for us. But God, in God's provision, God enables us to be in the company of children, his children, whether it's in a life group setting, whether it is uh, through accountability, or whether it is through mentoring, whether it is through close friendships those accountabilities will keep us in the narrow path. Now, I've just summarized here in both the cases of the Hebrew slave girl and the soldier, they gained proximity to Naaman through their competence. Because they were competent, they were elevated to that position. But they earned their respect because of their character. God wants to weave into our fabric both competence and character. But you know, one of the amazing things about this, uh, uh, both these individuals is that they did not allow the pursuit of competence or proximity to Naaman to in any way get in the way of their character development. They realized that their character was of utmost importance. They needed to guard it. So when competence brought them to a place of position and authority and power, they did not allow their character in any way to be maligned. Both these individuals used seasoned words with love, grace, respect, and winsomeness. And one of the hallmarks of a balanced competence character quotient is that we speak words, gracious words, winsome words, now, as someone said, uh, there was a, a lady called Pauline Hamilton. Uh, she, was a, she had a PhD in physiology from Pennsylvania, and she was wa uh, going to uh, China as a missionary. And uh, she had come to Toronto for a conference. This, this was about uh, 70, 80 years ago. And somebody met her at Union Station, and they gave her a one-liner. They said, Pauline, when you go to China, don't let business keep you 
from people because people are your business. Now, it's so easy for us to let business keep us away from people because people are our business. You know, the exercise of character and competence usually involves seeing and speaking. Now, if you do a character study of Jesus, you will see that Jesus saw. Jesus saw the needs, whether it was in the multitude. Jesus saw the needs in the leper's life. Jesus saw the need in a woman whose only son had died. Jesus saw the need when he came to Martha Mary's house. And when Jesus saw the need, invariably he responded by speaking. And his words carried power. Whether it was saying to the leper, be thou clean. Whether it is staying to the woman with the 36 years of bent back saying, stand up straight. Whether it is saying to the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, stretch out your hand. He didn't care who were there, whether he was doing it on Sabbath or not. His eyes saw the need and his mouth, lips spoke the word. Now, our visual system is one of the most powerful systems in the body. It has ability to process 36,000 pieces of information every minute. Every minute, our visual system is able to process 36,000 pieces of information. And God gives us the privilege to see the need in, uh, around us and be able to respond. And on one occasion, one of my students came to me, asked me what I was doing for the weekend. And uh, I said to her, I was going to a Christian retreat. She looked at me as if I was done something wrong. And uh, she said, well, how could someone educated even believe in this nonsense? She didn't say it in those words, but you could really see that that's what she was really uh, implying. Uh, over the Christmas holidays, I was praying for her. And uh, uh, after the Christmas holidays, she came to see me. I was uh, uh, teaching at that time. So she was uh, sitting outside my office for a number of, uh, uh, of practically a couple of hours, actually. Then when I came, she said, Dr. Pramala, there's something strange that has happened. I picked up my roommate's decision magazine that is put out by the Billy Graham Association. I began to read through the decision magazine. I came to be, uh, I, I, I could not help but bow my knees and accept Jesus. And she was attending a Bible study that I was leading at that time from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning. And a well, couple of months later, after I finished the Bible study, she said, can I speak to you for a few minutes? So we were walking up to my office, and we were in the staircase, and she looked straight in my eyes and said, my brother, who is a non-Christian, uh, he is making my life miserable because he's confused, he's angry that I had become a Christ follower. And uh, she was crying, and I said, let me pray for you. And I said, before I pray for you, I want you to know that Jesus is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. Do you believe that? She said, yes. With tears streaming down her eyes, standing in the hallway there in the biology department, I prayed for her. And that evening, I got a phone call at 6 o'clock, and she said, Brenda said to me, uh, I, my brother wants to talk to you. And of course, I was not too happy. I was scared. I said, what is he going to talk to me about? Is he going to argue? Is he going to report me to my authorities? Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I was teaching that evening. I said, can I speak to him at 9 o'clock? So he came over to our place at 9 o'clock. And from 9 o'clock to uh, 12 o'clock midnight, he was asking questions. First of all, he started off with a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness. And then he started asking questions around midnight he gave his life to Jesus. Now dear brothers and sisters, Jesus gives us words, words of wisdom, words of power, because we are following a God who hears our prayer. 
And it is in his master plan to bring those sheep that are outside the fold back into the fold. And he uses you and I. He, we are his hands and feet. He can open the uh, uh, windows of heaven and throw out the blessings. He can send angels as he sent to uh, shepherds and Mary and Zacharias uh, uh, or appear to people in dreams, which he does in other parts of the world. But he has chosen you and me and given me this incredible privilege to be his witnesses. It doesn't even have to be witnesses in workplace. All we have to do is be aware of the need that is around us. And when we see the need and we are willing to speak, the power of God will flow through our, 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 our lips. And God will take care of the rest. We might sow, somebody else might really come and water the, the seed that we have sown. Someone else will harvest it, but we will have the joy that we have been faithful to the call that he has given us. Because we have responded to what we have seen. And the reason we are responding to what we have seen is because we have seen the glorified Jesus. Maybe not with our physical eyes. Yes, sometimes with our physical eyes, but with our spiritual eyes as well. Now, there was an occasion several years ago. It was 1982, actually. I have, uh, had come to visit a friend whom I had led to the Lord in Brampton. So we prayed together for Friday and Saturday, and I was heading back to Waterloo. I was a graduate student at Waterloo at that time. And uh, uh, in those days, uh, I, uh, from Brampton to Kitchener, there was no direct bus, so I was taking the GO bus. So I was... Uh, uh, I took the bus at about 10 o'clock or 10, 10.30 or so from Brampton, and the, the bus uh, took me to Guelph, and I was in Guelph probably around 11, 11.15 or so. When I got off, uh, the bus driver said the connecting bus to uh, Kitchener from Guelph does not come for another 45 minutes. So I got off the bus. It was a, a July uh, summer evening. Uh, the days are hard. Days are usually, as in summer, days are hard, but sometimes evenings can become chilly. I had a very light jacket. I was feeling cold. I was really steaming mad because I had actually uh, phoned via rail to pick up my, uh, to book my ticket to go by uh, via train. There, there was a direct uh, train from Brampton uh, to Kitchener. But as I lifted up the phone, wanted to book my ticket, in the process of booking the ticket, the, uh, the voice of God very clearly, unmistakably told me, don't go by via rail, you're going by, Bram uh, by, go, uh, by go, go bus. So I was uh, standing here outside in Guelph, uh, at the Guelph bus station, and I was telling, Lord, if, if, if you really would have allowed me to go by train, I would have been home by now. Here I am, stuck for another 45 minutes. I was steaming mad. I had a quarter in my pocket. I put my quarter into the newsstand. Those days you could get a, a paper for uh, 25 uh, cents, and the only paper uh, box that had any papers was the Toronto Sun. So I put in 25 cents. The machine ate up my 25 cents, but didn't give me the paper. I was even madder at this point. I was just telling the Lord, Lord, what are you trying to do? And the Lord said, I'm going to bring someone, and you're going to speak to them. And sure enough, five minutes later, this tall young man walks in. He was a student at the University of Guelph. He was on his way to Waterloo to visit his girlfriend, and uh, they had gotten into the fight. He was not a Christ follower, and uh, I, he knew that the bus from K Guelph to Kitchener was at 12, 12, 15, but he came there 45 minutes early. He doesn't know why he came 45 minutes early. And uh, I went to him and I introduced myself, shared my testimony with him. We sat beside each other in the bus and, uh, uh, and we exchanged phone numbers. We shared the cab. cab. I was a poor graduate student, so I was very happy that there was someone that I could share the cab from Kitchener to Waterloo. Uh, and then I exchanged phone numbers. I said, I'll give you a call. 
So I phoned him up a couple of weeks later, and I said, uh, a few weeks later, and I said, well, we're having a Christian retreat. Would you be interested in coming? And he said to me, well, you know what? I would love to come. And I, by this time, I'd been long enough in Canada when someone said, I'd love to come. That means they are not that you get ready for the next statement. He says, but I've got basketball trials for the varsity team for University of Guelph. And if I don't get selected there for, for the team, then I will come. So I said to myself, I don't remember saying this, but he remembers it very clearly. Evidently, I said to him, okay, we'll pray that you won't get selected so that you can come to the retreat. Right? And a week later, I phoned him up and I said, uh, uh, so are you coming to the retreat? And he said, well, I want to tell you that uh, I uh, did not get selected on the basket varsity basketball team for University of Guelph. So I will honor my commitment in coming to the retreat. But I've got one condition. I said, what is it? He said, can my girlfriend also come? I said, sure, your girlfriend can come. You can come. We'll make arrangements for you to be picked up in Guelph. Your girlfriend, well, she was doing computer science in Waterloo. So we picked both of them up, came to the retreat. They both became Christ followers. And what I did not know at that time, until I went to Guelph to visit him in his room, I was taking a course at University of Guelph on one evening, so I went to visit him. And what I did not know at this point, that this young man, was a national basketball player for the country of Malaysia from the time he was 15. And God saw to it that he did not get selected on a Mickey Mousey varsity team for one of the schools. It was not even an Ivy school, right? War, at least well, I, uh, I studied in Waterloo, so there was always that rivalry. Waterloo uh, basketball team was much better than uh, other teams. But nonetheless, God did a miracle. And 32 years later, this week, when we were in that country, we were able to connect with this man and his wife. And they both are faithfully following the Lord. They come from a very rich family. He was telling me, uh, we had dinner with them a couple of times, Monday, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. He was telling me, Chris, you know, uh, my, my friends tell me, they say, you're so rich, why don't you buy a new car? He says, well, I've been asking my father for a new car, and he hasn't given me yet, so I, I'm okay with the, the new car. And they were his friends were baffled. They said, you don't have a father. He said, no, no, I have a father in heaven. <laughs> and the Lord is doing amazing things in their lives. So he said to the Lord, I believe, when he became a Christian, he said, if you should convert, when you convert my mother, then I would want to quit my job as a businessman and I want to serve you as a pastor. So uh, in 2009, he said his mother was miraculously saved. Someone who had born and brought up as a Buddhist for 70 plus years, she was miraculously changed, uh, saved. And uh, my friend Ang said to me, no, the still, the still small voice said to me, it's time for you to stick to your end of the deal. So he resigned his job, went to Bible college. Today he's pastor of one of the, uh, uh, one of the uh, Baptist churches in Penang. And it gets much better. So I was asking his wife. They eventually got married and they have a 26-year-old son. I said, so tell me your story. Because we had discipled them for about a year and a half or so. And she said, you know, when I came, to, came back to Malaysia, my, fa my, my family uh, did not want to accept me. They said, we sent you to Canada to study. We didn't send you to become a Christian. They said, we want you to pay back all of the money that we paid towards your education. And she worked, paid back the money. And uh, one day, one of the political party leaders in the country of Malaysia approached her and said, we want you to contest for, uh, uh, as an MPP for our state. And uh, she said, well, I, what do I know about politics? 
And she said, if you want me to contest, let me pray about it. And they were really amazed. Why would you want to pray? And they were non-Christian. She, she came back to them and said, I've got three conditions if you want me to contest. And I've written them down here. She said, if you want me to contest, I want you to know that I'm a Christian and this is a non-Christian country. Okay, and, and, it's, uh, and she, she said, I'm a Christian and I will, I will uphold Christian principles. If you want me to contest, my second condition is, I'm a Christian, so I go to worship Jesus on Sundays. So if any, any party me meetings come, or if my presence is required in any of the social functions, and it contradicts with my Sunday worshiping the Lord, I will not attend it. And the third condition she put was, if your, uh, if your ruling party has a vote, and that vote contradicts my own convictions, I will not tow the party line. And she was elected three-term member of parliament for 15 years. So I said to her uh, just on Tuesday or Wednesday when we were sitting down together, I said, so how did you manage? She said, there will be times where people would come and bring stacks of money. And she would say, I would not touch it. And because she was standing against uh, the, the, the main... Uh, fray of the political corruption. The, she, the, the complaint reached the prime minister and she said for one month very recently, she was the front page news article for one month nationally. So I said, oh, that must have been very difficult. She said, no, that was actually very good because I became popular and the public started saying, it's about time that we have a politician who lives up to this conviction, their conviction. Dear brothers and sisters, we are serving a living God. And God has given us eyes to see. And when we can see the need and speak with the mouth, not because we are capable, but he teaches us. He unloosens our tongue so that we can interact with the people that God brings our path. And you don't have to be working. You know, some of you may be retired or some of you may be stay-at-home mom. Some of you may run into somebody at, the, uh, at a, a grocery store or a bus stop. Watch out for the opportunities. The character competence uh, uh, quotient that God has weaved into your life. Even as you, become, as you become more and more like Jesus, God is going to harness that and use you as his witness. Now coming back to the story of Naaman, after he bathed in River Jordan, he was completely healed. And you know, one of the things that amazes me about this new believer is that as soon as he recognized that he was healed, he came back to Elisha. And when he came back to Elisha, notice what he says. Then he returned to the uh, man of God he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and, sa and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now my present from your servant. You know, Naaman's response to divine healing is exemplary. Inasmuch, it resulted in a change of heart followed by gratitude. Now, I come from a country where people give a lot of money uh, to their gods so that they, gods can do favor for them. And sometimes when things happen as they desire, they go and pour out money at the feet of these gods, their gods. But there's never a change in lifestyle. 
But Naaman's story is such an amazing story that he exemplifies for us that we come, when we come face to face with the reality of this living God who died for us, who weaves into our life's character because of the transformation that happens at the cross, then we get that recognition that there is no other God like the God Jehovah. You know, it would have been so tempting for Naaman to stay behind with Elisha and say, Elisha, I love it here. So can I just stay behind here? But Elisha didn't do that. Uh, Sorry, Naaman didn't do that. He went back to his uh, calling. And you know, Naaman says something very, very interesting here. He said to to Elisha, please let them give, give your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings of sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. And what could the significance of this uh, two uh, mules load of earth be? And there's just a couple of points I've written down here. And it's possible, it's possible that Naaman was asking for these two loads, uh, mule loads of soil to be taken from Israel. We don't know the exact reason, but it's possible and I'm speculating here, is that that he could erect an altar to Yahweh for a memorial or a witness to God of Israel in his own land. On this, he would offer sacrifices as an evidence of the determination to forsake all other gods. It's also possible that sometimes when circumstances forced him to bow ceremonially, because he was the king's bodyguard and the captain. He had to bow to the Syrian gods with the king. Then he might use the reality by placing his knees on the soil that we, he, he took from Israel. So he would not be bowing, in a sense, to the gods of Syria, but bending his knees on the soil that was brought from the land of Israel where Yahweh is worshipped. Now, as I bring this uh, sermon to a close, I was just putting a few uh, closing thoughts together last night around five o'clock or so. And uh, in my uh, computer folder, I had put in uh, uh, an article that I had read several months ago and I had completely forgotten about it. And uh, just around five o'clock, as I was fine-tuning my sermon yesterday, fighting jet lag, I said, okay, let me just go into that uh, that, uh, article. And I I just want to close with that. And this is a really very well-written article. Uh, It's it's taken from uh, the magazine called High Calling. uh, And it talks about the five ways to be a Christian in workplace and not freak out our human resources, okay? We're living in a world where there's so much antagonism against Christianity. So how can we live as Christ followers without freaking out HR? Number one, be genuine. People of faith are pure in their motives and dealing with others. They don't put on airs or sniff the air for hints of sinful behavior. Be genuine. Secondly, Be hopeful. People of hope don't lie about the reality of the world, but they are pressing on towards a new day. They inject positive direction in every dark situation. Thirdly, be righteous. People of the way speak impartially in every situation. If there is deception, then we are the ones who need to speak out. If there is injustice, we are the ones to defend the innocent. But remember, we need to speak out of concern 
confidence in God and courageously and winsomely. Fourthly, be faithful. There's nothing worse than a person of faith who who shows up late and isn't a team player. You will be respected for your work ethic far before you are respected for your faith. And finally, be relational. Our faith isn't always content-oriented. It's not about proof texts and apologetics. Most people come to Christ because someone loved them. And that's our highest calling in the workplace. May God help us. Let us pray. And Father, I thank you for the example of this young Hebrew slave girl and for that of the servants, the soldiers, which brought such a transformation in a man who was proud, arrogant, and angry. So we pray that his, their example might, uh, might bring us to a place that we too will take our calling seriously to be your witnesses so that when we lift you up, you will draw people to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. My benediction to you uh, is very simple and straightforward. May God weave into the tapestry of your week circumstances that will enable you to see the need around and unloosen your tongue that you might speak words of wisdom, words of hope, words of grace. And may God enable you to see the fruit. Go in Jesus' name.